Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you again. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, where you'll find your place in, in Luke 14, verse 1, and we'll look at the whole chapter this morning. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. When Christ first came, He inaugurated a kingdom that He will consummate when He comes again. The kingdom has come, but we do not presently see it in its fullest, most visible form. It is like that mustard seed and that leaven that Jesus spoke about in chapter 13. Though it has grown since it was first planted, since it was first hidden within that loaf, so to say, it remains hidden from the world. This is precisely as He said it would be. Nevertheless, He has also taught us that when He comes, a great reversal will take place. Therefore, He calls us to live at present in light of that coming reversal. That is the call that we'll find this morning in Luke chapter 14. In two scenes that unfold before us, we will see this call repeatedly made to live our lives in light of the reversal that Christ will bring. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me in Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded, before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give all of us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things out of your word this morning. May we be people who hear and keep your word who understand the wisdom therein contained, as we receive that wisdom from the one who is perfect in wisdom, the very Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we receive his word with wisdom and understanding this morning, so that we might be, O Lord, hearers of your word and doers of it also. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the idea of a great reversal is a familiar one to all of us. We think about it, if we are sports fans, we call it a comeback. Or we hear it in the movements of a symphony as they progress to the grand finale. We read it in novels and watch it in movies when a hero is at the mercy of the villain only to escape his clutches. We even anticipate and reflect on reversals in our lives, looking ahead in hope of better days, or looking back wistfully as we think of things that have gone by. In a similar way, Scripture calls us to consider a great reversal that will soon come, but not the kind of reversal that only lasts in this life. Rather, God assures us in His Word that a day will come when He sets every wrong right, a day of great reversals, and we are to consider this reversal as we order our lives as God's people. The prophets proclaimed the coming reversal of God's kingdom, as they called Israel to repent and return to the Lord. For example, in a prayer of praise, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, said these words in 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He lifts the needy from the ash heap 
to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. Hannah would go on in that prayer to speak of the Christ, saying, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. She knew that her own reversal, for the Lord had given life to her barren womb and given her a son according with her, to her prayer. Her own reversal would play a role in that greater work of reversal that would bring an anointed king, and she praised the Lord for it. Likewise, Isaiah prophesied that the Lord has an appointed day of judgment when all who are proud will be brought low and God alone will be exalted. Ezekiel, in the same way, warned God's people of that day, saying, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. God has appointed a day for a great reversal, when the proud will be humbled in judgment, and those who humble themselves in repentance will be exalted in salvation. Therefore, Scripture calls the wise to order their life, order their ways in light of this coming reversal. In Proverbs 3, 34 through 35, we read, Toward the scorners, the Lord is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. James applied that text when he wrote those words we read this morning. When he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as he called those early Christians to whom he wrote to repent, because their life was characterized by pride and conflict. As he called them to humble themselves, he said, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He challenged them to humble themselves in repentance before God, rather than exalting themselves before one another. And the basis for his challenge was the certainty of that coming reversal. Peter, in the same way, referenced that same text from Proverbs when he called church leaders to be servants and shepherds and when he taught young believers to honor their leaders. In many ways, James and Peter were simply applying the teaching of Jesus, even as they called upon the wisdom of Proverbs. Indeed, Jesus taught his disciples to live in light of the coming reversal, saying, And behold... Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. We heard those words last week. Indeed, it has been something of a theme in his teaching. For he taught his disciples, saying in Luke 9, 24 through 26, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Later he said in the same way, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. In sum, Jesus taught his disciples to embrace humility and service in this life, and he taught them this again and again, knowing that when he comes again, he will bring a great reversal. Those who are wise will live in the light of that day, even now. So in our passage this morning, Jesus expands upon these themes as he challenges Pharisees in their legalism, and the crowds 
that followed him to humble themselves in view of that day. It all began with a dinner with some hypocrites. It's a Sabbath day, and Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And as they have done before, and as they will do again, they are watching him carefully, but they're not watching because he's such a curious person. They're watching as they've done before in order to catch him in something he might say or something he might do. And behold, we read in verse 2, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That is, he had a condition of the heart that caused him to swell as though he were full of water. It was a severe condition, a serious condition. And so before Jesus deals with this man, he answers the lawyers. They haven't asked a question, but in their watching, and as he perceives their, their thoughts and their hearts and the, the, what they're thinking as he's done before, We can see how Jesus is responding to them. He responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees, and he asks them a question that we have heard before. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? All the way back in Luke chapter 6, he asked a very similar question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do wrong? To give life or to take it? And then they would not answer him because of their hardness of heart. They could not answer him, and nothing much has changed. They remained silent. So he took the man. He healed him. He sent him away. And then he makes another argument that's familiar to us because he made it in chapter 13 in a similar way. He says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. In Luke chapter 13, he made a similar argument, though it was slightly different. There, after he had healed a woman in a similar context on the Sabbath day in a synagogue, he confronted the hypocrites who challenged him, and he said, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? There, his argument was an argument from routine necessity. In other words, based on routine necessity, every single person present there recognized that there were some tasks, some jobs that had to be done regardless of whether it was a Sabbath day. And in their recognition, by their actions, they demonstrated their hypocrisy. Here, they demonstrate their hypocrisy by withholding a necessary act of mercy. That is, they wouldn't withhold it from their son, in this case, and an ox, that has fallen into a well. If they see one in need child of their own or a beast of their own, they will immediately act to save that animal or that person, regardless of whether it's a Sabbath day or not. They will show mercy to the person in need according to their ability to show mercy. It's precisely what Jesus has done. He's shown mercy to a man in need according to his ability to show mercy. And as they have done before, they would condemn him for it but he cuts them off before they can even get there. This passage at the outset of our text this morning shows us the scope and the seriousness of self-righteousness for God's people. First, we see that the problem of self-righteousness and hypocrisy is widespread. As I've said, it's not the first time we've seen this self-same problem on the part of the scribes and Pharisees, and it's not the last time we will see it. It was a widespread problem in Jesus' day, and I suggest to you it's a widespread problem in our own day. What we saw last week in Luke 13 was not isolated. Second, 
As Jesus continues to challenge this issue, we see how important it was to him. There are two things we might say that he confronted more than anything else. Self-righteousness on the part of the Pharisees and pride on the part of his disciples. Again and again, he confronted his disciples for these things, challenging them to think otherwise. And likewise, again and again, he confronted the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. The recurrence of this challenge shows us how serious this issue was to Jesus. And third, we see that why this is such a problem. As the text unfolds, and as we've seen already, it prevents people from showing mercy to others. It prevents them from fulfilling those two great commandments, loving God with their whole heart and loving their neighbor as themselves. And it blinds them to the purposes of God. It's a dangerous thing, self-righteousness and hypocrisy. So Jesus is going to deal with this problem of self-righteousness and legalism by challenging it through a series of parables. We need to hear these challenges, for it's not just a problem for Pharisees. It's a problem for us whenever we get so obsessed with our rulemaking Whenever we get so obsessed with rules and regulations that the sum and substance of the Christian life in our eyes becomes the checking of, a, of, a, of boxes on a checklist, the keeping of rules on a list, we've lost sight of the real call of Christ. And when we become like that, when we look in the mirror, we will see a Pharisee looking back. We have many lists in both the Old and the New Testaments that teach us how we should live. But those lists, apart from a changed heart, can easily become a cover for self-righteous hypocrisy. Pride and hypocrisy cannot be legislated away. We must avoid that temptation to try. Humility only comes through a changed heart. When God presses His Word upon our hearts, so let us prepare our hearts as we receive God's Word through the Son of God, as He teaches us concerning kind of attitude that we need if we're truly to honor God with a heart that is changed. It starts with humility that anticipates the exaltation that will come from Christ. We see this in the parable that Jesus told to those who were invited there in verse 7 because he notices how they choose for themselves the place of honor at the feasts. And so he says, when you're invited to the wedding feast, to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor. And we can see how this picture unfolds. It's a foolish thing that, he's going to, that they do if they do this kind of thing. He's going to show that to them in a way that they can understand in their own context. You see, when people would attend a feast like this or a dinner, they would be seated according to their honor and dignity. But if someone comes in, in that society, and arrogates to himself, presumes to himself to take the seat of honor and dignity, he does a foolish thing, for he does not know if the host has not invited someone of greater dignity. He is presumptuous. And if that person comes in and is of greater dignity, then that man will be shamed as the host comes to him and says, give your seat to this man. And then he must go and take the last seat. Far better to take the last seat first, and then be told, come up to this higher place and to be honored in the sight of all. Now this parable should have been familiar to those who heard Jesus speak it. For in Proverbs 25, verse 6 through 7, we read this, these words, 
Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Evidently, they had not internalized those words from Scripture. In fact, this point may help us to understand the parables and how they're related to Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs generally, I mean. You see that word for parable, it can be also used to refer to a single proverb. And, And what happens oftentimes is a proverb crystallizes the point of the broader parable. So you can take a proverb and you can expand it into that narrative form of what we understand to be a parable, or you can take that parable and you can reduce it into that crystallized form that we understand as a proverb. And that helps us to understand what's the point of the parable, because Jesus does both of these. He derives this narrative that he tells from a proverb in the book of Proverbs, and then he crystallizes it in a final proverb that he himself coins, saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see what Jesus is saying in this parable? He's not teaching the Pharisees how they simply can... Uh, can manipulate their host when they are guests at a dinner party to gain some honor in their society. Rather, he's preparing them for a more significant message. It's not about how to win friends and influence people. Jesus wanted them to see that day that is coming when everything would fully and finally be changed. And he was inviting them to consider their actions in light of that coming day. Therefore, The concluding proverb was meant to show them that this reversal that will take place will be universal. The reversal that is pictured in the parable depicts a future, final, and ultimate reversal that applies to every single person. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's as Isaiah prophesied. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The same lesson applies to us because that reversal will be universal. Therefore, we ought to order our ways according to that reversal. We are all proud in various ways. Conceit is deceptive, and it easily creeps into our lives. However, we should make it our aim to root it out, to give it no quarter, to allow it no place in our midst. Otherwise, it will spread like gangrene and it will entrench ourselves like weeds in a garden if we permit it. But a day will come when God will finally destroy all pride and all pretense on the part of man, not just for Pharisees and not just for the worst offenders, but for everyone. In that light... Let us make it our constant effort to humble ourselves before God and one another. This is the way of wisdom we are taught by the one who humbled himself unto death on a cross. Let us have this mind then among ourselves as well. Jesus taught us to humble ourselves that we might be exalted on that day when everyone who is humble will be exalted and everyone who is exalted will be humbled. Jesus also would go on to teach the Pharisees to show mercy and kindness as a particular expression of humility. Listen to what he says then to the host, directly to this man in verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid with the resurrection of the just. In this culture, it would have been customary for a person to host a dinner party like this as a way of gaining favor with others. He would think that his guests owe him and his guests would reciprocate and feel that they do owe him something. This kind of dinner was not a pure, gracious gift. Furthermore, in that society, much like ours, it would have been natural to show this kind of honor and kindness to others of high status as a way of advancing yourself among those who are rich or those whom one respects. It was a sure way to increase in stature in that culture. And our culture is not so different in that respect. But Jesus wanted his guests to see that this is not really much of a reward at all. So he places the reward a guest can give the host against the reward that God will give on that final day of reversal. By whom would you prefer to be honored, God or man? The answer is simple and straightforward. But every day in our decisions and actions, we prefer the honor and praise of men. So we show kindness to those who do not need it because we think we will receive something in exchange for it. Instead, as Jesus taught this Pharisee, we should show honor and kindness to those who have no way of repaying us. In this case, he used the poor, the lame, the blind as examples, and they will feature in the next parable also. They have been a fixture fixture in Jesus' ministry all the way back in Luke 4 when he introduced his ministry, quoting the words of Isaiah 61. He declared that his ministry was to proclaim good news to the poor and the restoration of sight to the blind. When John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus as he languished in prison, Jesus reminded him of words again from Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35. As he healed the blind, giving them sight, and made the lame to walk and preached good news to the poor, he called John's disciples to consider those things and report them to John that John might be assured. It was evidence that Jesus was truly sent by God for his concerns were the same as God's concerns as he declared through the prophet. It is God's good purpose to reverse the curse of sin in this world and that means a full and final restoration of all that is lost. Lameness, blindness, all of these things. God will bring a great reversal on that day of the resurrection of the just. And as a foretaste of that reversal, Jesus healed men and women who suffered from these kinds of things. And he called his disciples to be concerned for that same kind of person, the person who has no way of repaying that kindness, to show mercy to those in need as our Lord showed mercy to those in need. In every age, some Christians will find themselves in positions of power and prestige. It's not necessary to abandon those positions in order to be faithful. One doesn't need to sell all his assets or resign a position of power. But God has called and placed us, some of us, in those positions so that we might promote what is just and fair and so we might show mercy and kindness to people. As the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life.
if we have a position like this man who was able to host a dinner. And God has called us to use that to show mercy to others and to promote what is just and what is right and what is fair. That is how we can humble ourselves in light of the reversal that will someday come and make nothing of the power or the riches that we have. Now, as the passage then unfolds, a man steps into the conversation in a kind of ignorant embarrassment, as when a person steps into a conversation midstream and thinks he knows what people are talking about and doesn't really. He overhears what Jesus says when he says, and you will be blessed to this man. It's an interesting thing that Jesus says. It's a beatitude, like the beatitudes that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, it's the only beatitude in the whole New Testament which Jesus speaks to the host that has a future tense. Normally you say, blessed is the person who is, is, uh, has such a thing about him. And it's based in something that will happen in the future. But here he says to the man, you will be blessed. There's a condition in that. There's a potentiality that he communicates. But here then, a man steps into the conversation and offers his own beatitude there in verse 15. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And we see presumption on his part. The assumption that, well, of course, I'll be one of those blessed people. We're the Pharisees, after all. Man comes across like an ignorant fool who embarrasses himself midstream in a conversation he was not part of. But Jesus corrects his misspoken beatitude with a parable. So he tells one more parable about a great banquet there in verse 16, where the host of the banquet invited many. And then the time of the banquet comes and he sends out word that it's time to enter in. But each person, one by one, makes excuses because he has some seemingly reasonable, routine concern he must care for. He's bought a field or he's bought some oxen or he's uh, just married a wife. And we think, well, that seems reasonable. But this is a great banquet This is not just an ordinary Sabbath dinner. It's a great banquet. It's the kind of thing that they were notified about and that they should have ordered their life around. It's the kind of thing that they should have made plans for and not have allowed something else, especially routine matters, to infringe upon. And so from that perspective, we begin to see how this master of the house is justified when the servant comes and reports the news back to him. To be wrathful, to be angry with those men, And so, he says something that then surprises us. He sends the servant back out into the streets and the lanes of the city, and here we see it again, bringing the poor and crippled and blind and lame, those people for whom it is God's good pleasure to bring salvation, those people who represent all who are low in society, all who are humble in the eyes of others. And the servant goes and does it, and he comes back and says, there's more room. It's been done, and there's still room. And he says, go out again into the highways and hedges beyond the town and bring in more because my house will be full. And we hear again what we heard in chapter 13 when someone asked Jesus, will those who are saved be few? And he answered, those who are saved will be many through a parable. 
but also many will be left outside because they will refuse the invitation. Here, Jesus takes up and expands upon that parable from chapter 13 from a different perspective. In chapter 13, he looked at it from the perspective of the end when the door gets shut, but here he looks at it from the perspective of the invitation going out, and we see why the door gets shut on the face of those who refuse the invitation because they refuse the invitation. They refuse the invitation in the parable and in real life because they refuse to believe in the one who brings his people into that kingdom, into that great banquet. And we're confronted with the same question. You see, the gospel message is a call for us to humble ourselves in the hope that God will exalt us when our Lord returns. God invites every one of us to enter his kingdom to come to that banquet, but the way in which we enter is through repentance from our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to enter. This requires us to humble ourselves in repentance by acknowledging that we are sinners. That is, we must acknowledge that God has a righteous and perfect standard. We have not measured up to that standard at any point in our lives. We've not even come close. Instead, We've crafted standards of our own, standards of righteousness that themselves do not measure up, just like the Pharisees, that are based on external rules and not an internal change of the heart. But God calls us to a life that is marked by love, which is full and complete. And who here can say, I have always loved God with all my heart, with all my being. I have always loved my neighbor as myself. No one. We must humbly acknowledge this and humbly resolve to pursue God's standard according to His grace, that's repentance. But We must also humble ourselves by trusting in Christ for our salvation. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, does not call us into the kingdom because we are so great and good and rich and respected. We are the same as those who are lame and blind, those who are poor on the earth. And yet He invites us on the basis of what he has done, the only one who is worthy in his own merit to enter into that banquet, became like us in our form and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our sake. And God exalted him, raised him from the grave. He ascended to the Father's right hand where he reigns and from where he will return. And he invites us to enter in on the basis of what he has done in giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sin and in what he has done in his perfect righteousness credited to our account. It's a free gift of eternal life that is offered through faith in Christ. It requires humility to accept it, though. It takes humility to believe that you cannot achieve your own salvation, that you cannot even contribute anything to it, that another accomplished all that is necessary for your salvation. That is what we are called to believe. That, brothers and sisters, dear friends, that is the invitation. Let us be people who receive that invitation by following Christ with repentance and faith. And then we can be assured that at the resurrection of the just, just as Jesus assured that host, we will find the blessedness of those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
Now, before we commit ourselves to that, though I trust and know that many of us have already committed ourselves to that way, we must step back and also count the cost. Not so that we might turn away, having counted the cost, but so we might realize and understand what it is that we are getting into. At this point, the scene shifts, and Jesus turns his attention to the crowds who follow him. The problem of the Pharisees was their self-righteous hypocrisy. The problem of the crowds is that many of them are going to be wishy-washy. They're not going to stick around through thick and thin. And Jesus challenges them with a word that will help them to see what they are in for, both now and in eternity. Presently following Christ entails a measure of difficulty, and we must prepare for that so it will not surprise us, so that we will endure to the end. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In this sermon, this is the first of three statements that conclude with that phrase, he cannot be my disciple. It's the main point that Jesus is making. It's what he structures the text around. And in between the second and the third phrase, we see then two examples that demonstrate the point. Now, in the first statement, Jesus is not using the, w- the word hate the way that we are accustomed to use it, as a way of kind of going out and trying to cause harm to people. We need to understand this in the broader context of what Jesus has already taught concerning the relationships between families. In Luke 12, 51 through 53, Jesus said, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one house... There will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We heard the same thing in Sunday school from Mark 13 this morning, that a characteristic of this age in which we live is that families will even turn on one another and deliver each other up to death. In that light, the challenge that comes to us is if our family would turn on us, our closest relationships, if they would turn on us and, and reject us for the sake of following Christ, will we say, Christ is more important to me and I will follow Him no matter what? That's the call of discipleship. That is the cost He lays before us in the first place, negatively speaking. Then He gives us another cost, Again, calling upon language that we have heard already from Luke chapter 9 when Jesus taught his disciples to take up their cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. There is not just a rejection by our closest relations, our closest friends, but there is also difficulty in this life. There is trial and tribulation that attends a life of discipleship. You see what Jesus is doing. He's showing that Following him is not just about a future reversal. It's also about a present reversal. It's about a humility that comes through rejection, humility that comes through suffering, through trial. We take up our cross, whatever our cross might be. Here we do this in imitation of our Lord who took up the cross that only he could bear so that we might be his disciples. We follow him through this life. If we don't, If we try to enter into the Christian life without having counted the cost, we are like a man who sets out to build a tower, but he has not determined whether or not he has sufficient funds to complete the task. 
and he is seen to be a fool in the end. We are like a king who sets out to go to war, but has not considered whether he has sufficient strength and force to win the battle. And he looks like a fool in the end. If he is wise, he will sue for peace. If the builder is wise, he will not begin the building project. It's just like when we read in the news about governments who begin public works projects and spend billions of dollars to build a monorail and never lay a foot of track. They are seen to be fools because they did not count the cost. And people mock them and wonder how they could be so foolish. Following Christ has a cost, as we see in verse 32. Excuse me, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, it doesn't mean that we must go and sell off all of our assets or give up our job or our status in society. It means that we need to renounce it. We have to have the attitude that the Apostle Paul demonstrated in Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11, when he said, Whatever gain I had, I had counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is simply expressing the commitment to the life to which Christ has called every one of us when he said, Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the call. This is the cost. Let us be a people who count that cost and count it worth it. There is no pleasure, no joy, nothing in this world that you can have that will endure on the day of that great reversal. So there's nothing in this world that is more, worth more than that which will endure forever. If we are that kind of people who count the cost and count it worth it, we will be salty. And that's where the final proverb of this chapter comes in. When Jesus says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. He employs this proverb in many contexts. In the Sermon on the Mount, he used it in conjunction with words about letting your light shine before all men so that your good works are conspicuous and people might honor the Lord because of them. In Mark chapter 9, he used it when he called his disciples to live at peace with one another. What he's saying is that in any context in which we are called, the peculiar qualities that are characteristic of the people of God, are like the saltiness of salt, are like the taste of salt. If salt doesn't taste good, or salt, it, it, then it cannot flavor the meat. It's not good for that. If it doesn't preserve the meat, it's not good for preservation. If it doesn't fertilize the soil, it's not good for that either. A person who professes faith in Christ, but maintains only a tentative commitment to Him, 
is like salt that has no taste. Now, salt's a stable compound. It can't lose its taste. But there are things that look like salt and might be perceived as salt and in the end show themselves not to be salt when they can't do that which only salt can do. That is what a person is like when they first profess faith in Christ, but they don't endure through trials and difficulties, or they choose to love the things of the world rather than to follow Christ. They're like unsalty salt, a bit of a misnomer. Now, how do we understand this passage, which encourages us to count the cost and warns us against losing the peculiar qualities that make us Christians in this life? In other words, how can we understand passages that warn us against falling away from Christ when we are assured that God will preserve His own faithful to the end? The answer is that we can understand them as a means by which Christ preserves us faithful to the end because that is entailed by the final words of this text. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The one whom God has given a heart to receive these words, the one whom God has given ears to hear and eyes to see, that person will hear warnings like this and say, I am duly warned. I accounted the cost. I know what may come my way in this life. And I counted worth it. I resolve to follow him wherever he leads because I believe his promise that he will surely come again. And when he does, if I am found in him... I will experience the blessedness of that great reversal that only He can bring. Then, that person in responding to God's Word, having ears to hear and eyes to see, he will demonstrate hopeful endurance and patient perseverance, which to him is as saltiness to salt, as taste is to salt. It is one of the many peculiar qualities of the Christian in this life. He humbles himself even in this that he's willing to be shamed by men, that he's willing to be scorned by others, that he's willing to suffer any indignity, that he's willing to suffer the loss of all things. Because one thing is needful. One thing is greater than all these. To be known by and to know Christ. Let us be that kind of people who have this kind of salt in ourselves that we may patiently persevere and endure with humility and faith, faithful to that day when God will bring that great reversal through His Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we cannot purchase ears to hear and we cannot go and find them somewhere. You must give us ears to hear. You must give us hearts to seek you. So we pray now, as we have heard your word, that you would do this work in us. Again and again, Lord, we pray that you would so work in us to impress your word upon our hearts that we might be people who are patient and persevering in this life in hope of the life to come. Make us a humble people, Lord. Make us a loving people. Make us a people who count the needs of others more important than ourselves, that we might demonstrate mercy to others and so people might see and give glory to you, the Father of mercies, the one who showed the greatest mercy to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.